Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There is a lot of false narratives, whether you call it fake news or you call it the pablum that we've been given, you know, the whole thing about marketing, art and science, you key that into Google and you're going to get 600 million searches is marketing and art and science. And you'll get people on both sides arguing very aggressively, like, no, marketing is an art. And this is what, no, marketing is a science. And this is what you need to do. And really, it's the wrong question to ask. So I think those false narratives are true. You know, the four P's to the four C's. There was a poll that was done by Marketing Week you know, just a couple of years ago, you know, their product price, place and promotion. And those were put in place like 50, 60 years ago. And they asked this Marketing Week poll, are they still relevant today? And 77% of people said yes. And it's like, what are you thinking? You know, it's not about you. It's not inside out. It's about the customer in. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Angelina, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I am delighted to be here with you this morning. Thank you. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your work by way of somebody on your team who apparently had been a longtime listener of our show. And when I found out about the way that you wrote about marketing and the fact that you did it sort of in mental models and frameworks, I think that that was very appealing to me because I tend to geek out on things like that. But before we get into all that, um, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've made with your own life and career? Yeah, that's that's a very um, in thought uh, thoughtful question. Um, what my parents did for work probably was not as significant as what the journey that they followed. And I'll explain that what I did for work, I think, really influenced my choices 
we can get into that later. So I'll, I'll step back a little bit. Um, we're an immigrant family, as I know so many of your guests and audience members are. And um, we immigrated. My father was 41. My mother was 35. Three children. We were born in Holland in the Netherlands in Europe. And uh, they set off to find new opportunities in America. Now, this is not going through Ellis Island type immigration. I mean, this is you know through a regular ocean liner and things of that nature. So it was past that decade. But they really wanted new opportunities. My father in the old country, as he called it, was a bookkeeper, uh, private, uh, and an entrepreneur, so to speak, because he had a shingle on the house and um, he would have clients that he would keep their books for and taxes and things of that nature. And my mother was a homemaker. And... Um, um, Neither one of them had been to, to high school, so don't even think about college. I mean, they, they neither one had a high school education, but they were very smart and very learned in their own way. Anyway, at 41 and 35, three children, they decided to immigrate to the United States. We ended up in the Midwest in Indiana because at that time we needed, you needed a sponsor family in order to, that would take care of you financially in the event so you wouldn't be a burden on the government, and we never were. And um, my father, even though he had uh, so-called office work, you know, obviously not knowing a word of English, um, neither one of them, they we, they started all over again at the bottom. And so my father did uh, a variety of manual um, uh, work, you know, in factories and janitorial and things like that until he learned the language. And at age, when I was age eight, um, they became citizens and I also became a citizen. I carried a green card until that. And I have two older brothers. So um, then uh, he really, uh, he was very proud of himself. He self-taught himself. He took the GRE, the high school equivalency exam. Uh, that was a very proud moment for him. And so I, so I say, you know, to your question, you know, what, how did their work influence me? It was really their life journeys their life journey and choices that influenced me, I think, uh, Serenity, mm -hmm. more than, you know, the roles or the work that they did. Yeah. I think my father was very brave, very courageous, didn't look back, didn't mind dusting himself off and starting at the bottom, you know, because when people don't know the language, you know, they don't, you know, you're not, <laughs> you know, you're at a disadvantage. And really, um, we lived a very modest life, but very, I think the biggest gift they gave me was stability. Uh, a very stable home life. And uh, I know so many people aren't as fortunate. And so um, it was not one of chaos or torment. It was just very predictable, maybe, maybe very, un, uh, maybe very ordinary, but it was very stable. And I think from that stability and that comfort and that, that love and closeness in the family, I was able to, you know, be confident in my own independence in my own self-reliance in in my own ability to forge my own path if that mm. makes any sense yeah so uh, two questions come from that outside of uh adapting to having to learn a new language both for for you and you know as children and your parents what things did you notice uh, about sort of the social structure and and culture of uh america that was very different from being mm -hmm. in holland 
Oh, that's very good. Well, so I was young when we immigrated. So I was only three and my brothers were five and eight. So, I mean, so I was the youngest. Um, what I noticed, so I spoke, you know, I went right to school and television and things like that, where you learn things from romper room and all that stuff. And so I spoke, um, we'd speak English at home and they'd speak Dutch back to us. So what I noticed about the social structure, maybe it was because it was in the Midwest. I don't know. And because um, now I'm based in California. But um, there was a, it was, it was dual, uh, dual um, response. There were some folks that would, um, when you don't know the language, people think you're dumb, you know? So mm-hmm. I, there were people that thought my mother and father were stupid and, um, you know, stupid immigrants type thing. I remember some people, and these aren't racial slurs, so I don't want to feel like I'm a victim, you know, it's, it's nothing of that nature at all. But it was a, a small town, closed-minded and um, they weren't used to foreigners. So I think there was a, um, a little bit of stereotype against us. I didn't really feel it. My, my, my mother took offense to it. I know my father didn't care. He never looked back. He thought America was wonderful. And uh, he loved the freedom here and the ability to chart your own path. So he never looked back. My mother missed her family, obviously. Um, so that, that, is what I noticed. Uh, and, but then that kind of faded away. Um, um, well, we moved from Indiana to upstate New York and New York was a little bit more, uh, integrated and progressive and, um, open, a little bit more open-minded than the Midwest was. And again, no, no disrespect to any of your Midwest Western uh, listeners. <laughs> but, uh, so I think that's what I noticed probably. There's, there's a, there's people are afraid of foreigners. But speaking to the other side, there was another group of people. I remember a dear neighbor of ours who took my mother under her wing and she um, said, you know, your daughter needs to learn how to play piano and your daughter needs to read, you know, Little Women. And she'd buy me all these cultural things. And it was really very touching that she was really um, extended an olive branch and saw it as her um, her mission to to help this immigrant family, you know, adapt and thrive in, in a new world. Mm-hmm. So for your dad, you know, we're in a situation, obviously, where people are going through a lot of hardship right now. And what I wonder is, you know, for somebody at the age of 41 to say, okay, I'm going to start over from the bottom, that in my mind requires an incredible amount of humility. Uh, what do you think it is that enables somebody to have that level of humility to say, okay, you know what, like this this means I'm going to have to start at the bottom because I think that, you know, when you have to reinvent yourself, inevitably, to some degree, you do actually take steps back. Oh, absolutely. He knew he would be taking steps back. He knew that. But I think the and it's like change management, right? The whole paradigm, you know, when the pull of the possible is greater than the pain of the president, you know, you make that leap right into the new frontier. So I think it was a lot of humility. It, he didn't, um, he used to joke, this, this, this is funny. He worked at Eastman Kodak Company um, and he did, uh, he used to come home and he had a great sense of humor and he'd come home and he'd say, well, I was in the CEO's office again. I go in the CEO's office every day. And we said, wow, you know, that's really, he'd tell friends and relatives and stuff. They'd say, wow, that's really amazing. You're in the CEO's office every day. Oh yeah. Emptying his trash. (laughs) (laughs) And he would laugh and it was just so true, you know, to who he was, you know, he was just, 
he didn't care, you know, and he provided very well for us. So no, no, no problem there. Never took a handout, but uh, just, yeah, a great sense of humility. Now that can also be a double-edged sword when you're, you know, I inherited a lot of humility and uh, I found that that sometimes works against you in the business world where you're too humble and, uh, you know, let others, you know, kind of, uh, uh, ride roughshod or take credit for things, but that's a whole different story too. <laughs> yeah. So growing up the way you did, you know, with immigrant parents, like what kind of guidance did they give you about career choices or tell you about, you know, how to make your way in the world? I mean, was it like a standard immigrant narrative? Like we didn't come here to uh, have you go waste your life. I, I think it was, uh, we had this guest recently, Jacob Seger Weinstein. He said, you know, his narrative was, you know, our parents were peddlers so that we could become doctors and lawyers and we became doctors and lawyers so our kids could become artists. And I was like, you will never hear an Indian parent say that. Mm, interesting. No, it wasn't that narrative. So my father was very pro-education. I mean, he was really self-taught. I mean, he was a learner, right? He loved to read. He was a voracious reader. He loved to study history. He loved to read current events. He was very big on current events. He'd know. Um, and he would always say, I know, he'd say to all three of us, he said, I know education's important. Go to school, you know, go to college, get your, you know, but he couldn't really guide us. Like if you, if you, your, your father's a doctor, you know, he's going to, or your mother's a doctor, they're going to say, you know, you're going to emulate and say, well, you know, if they did it, I could do it, you know, type thing. Or if you're, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of it where it rubs off a little bit. If you're around people who have made it in a field, you say, well, I can give it a try. If they can do it, I could do it. So it wasn't, the, I didn't get specific guidance. I got a lot of encouragement, especially from my father. My mother just wanted me to be happy and adjusted and, you know, have a well-rounded life. And she was a full of love. I mean, she was a wonderful lady, but not as career and, and um, education focused as my father. So my father said it's important to go to college. So I did. So I did the pay-as-you-go plan because, you know, I, it was not what I owned. So I did two years of community college and I said, wow, that was pretty good. I did that, didn't go in debt. And so then I applied to a four-year college and transferred. I did that, you know, that went well. And then eventually I got my graduate degree, and that went well. And then that led to my chosen profession. So they were encouraging, but not instruct. They didn't give me the roadmap. They gave me the compass. I think you talk about that in your yeah. interviews with Seth Godin and others. You've talked about compass and map. They gave me the compass, but they didn't give me the map. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So that raises another question. Do you have kids? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, I, we have four, four children. Okay. So millennials, why? all millennials. <laughs> okay. So numerous questions from this. Like, Why is it that, you, I mean, you mentioned that your parents were encouraging, but not instructive. And I feel like so often um, parents are insistent on giving their kids a map rather than a compass and being instructive rather than encouraging. Why do you mm-hmm. think that is? Well, that's a very good question. I, I think it's maybe more for themselves. <laughs> I hate to say that. Maybe it's a little selfish if you give a map. Maybe if your children are successful, somehow it makes, it elevates you and your social status and your, you know, uh, among your, your peer group. This, you know, maybe I'm being harsh in that statement, but that's the only thing I can think of. Why would you give someone, tell someone exactly what to do? Don't you want them to explore and find their own path? And, you know, it's a combination of my mother. She wanted me to be fulfilled and happy, you know, and my father mm-hmm. said, and I know education is the key, so get some education, you know, very important. But they were more about values and more about instructing on right and wrong uh, than they were on... um they didn't give us the map. None of us, you know, received the map. Uh, I don't know if it was a cultural thing or individual thing, but I feel very fortunate, you know, to, I, I'd prefer that than the map because I think then I would have had expectations yeah. placed upon me. So how has, how has the way that you were raised by your parents informed your own decisions uh, and guidance as a parent? So I, 
one of the big things is, um, I like this word, especially for women, it, to be self-reliant. And it's a little different than being independent. I'm a very independent person. Uh, but I think being self-reliant versus being other-reliant is a very, very important trait. And that's how I try to raise my children as well. You know, obviously, we're here to support them. We don't want them to, you know, we're a safety net if needed. But yeah. uh, we're not the ones to, you know, write big checks, you know, even though we could at this stage. You know, that's this doesn't help them in their development. It mm-hmm. helps them more if they struggle a bit, you know, and we're watching. We're going to, you know, we want to give them, you know, the roots and wings, right? You, you, you know, the whole two best gifts you can give your children are roots and wings. And so it's kind of relates to stability and agility in the business world. But roots and wings are very important. So if you give them the right... Um, uh, values and the right foundation. You want them to be deep, but then you also want them to, and I've never asked my children, you know, to go into one profession or the other. My daughter is a creative entrepreneur. You know, she's doing extremely well. And she, and because of my career has been in marketing and branding, she's asked me repeatedly for help and, you know, how do I brand myself? How do I market this? And quite frankly, I can't help, a, uh, I can't help her very much because her, her, um, her her situation is so much different than it is in the business world than my experiences have been. But I encouraged her, even though it, it wasn't very lucrative for many, many years, um, to follow that path because I knew that would make her happy. And I could see she was happier doing those things that she was pursuing than she would be if I say, you know, got to, you know, get a job at Google, which she did. She had a job at Google for a year and was miserable. And I thought, okay, this is a dream job for most millennials, you know, to get into Google and to work on the AdWords team. And she hated it. I said, who hates Google? How can you hate working at Google? But I was, we were very, my husband and I were very supportive and said, you know, she's got to follow her path, even though it's, it's not lucrative initially. And we're not going to fund it. You know, she's mm-hmm. going to have to struggle. But again, we're safety net. We're not going to let them, we're not going to yeah. let them sink, obviously. They're drowned. Does that make sense? So it's a little yeah. bit of a tough love, but I think in the end, it's the right thing to build character and independence Absolutely. and self-reliance. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to do a deeper dive into this idea of self-reliance and independence um, and, you know, safety nets, given the context of sort of what we're dealing with today in America, because I, I don't think that people generally want handouts from the government, but there are a lot of people who are suffering, and I don't think it's because they don't want to be self-reliant. I think that, you know, this is something I probably beat like a dead horse on the show is that I feel to some degree that there's been a, uh, you know, level of self-interest, uh, particularly, you know, when you get into sort of corporations and really wealthy people that we've pushed to the point of diminishing returns, which doesn't take into account sort of interdependency and the fact that, you know, everybody is dependent on each other and you can't sort of optimize one group while the rest suffers and not have, you know, long-term consequences. So, you know, when you think about it from that context, particularly given that, you know, I assume, you know, your kids are kind of raised in an upper middle class environment, kind of like I was. Um, But what about the people who don't have a situation that facilitates self-reliance? I mean, you know, who really are, I mean, granted, you know, you can find sort of counter narratives to that, like 50 Cent, who was raised in the worst environment possible. But how many people develop that kind of resilience? I mean, I think it's really dangerous to use outliers as role models. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I think the world's changed. I think before it was simpler times. So if you were, you know, uh, living modestly, you could survive and still maintain and 
care for your family. I think it was different. Now I do think because of the big dichotomy between uh, the haves and the have-nots, there's help needed. Uh, there's so many problems going on now. So it's, it's you know, it's mental health. I mean, there's so many, you know, opioid, you know, addictions. I mean, there's so many struggles that people have, but just get to the basic people who are falling through the safety net. I agree with you. I think they need help and mm-hmm. I'm okay with giving help. I've never been, <laughs> it's kind of funny because my father wanted to get out of Europe because the socialism and not that he was a capitalist, but, you know, he didn't like, uh, you know, handcuffs. And, you know, I'm leaning, you know, not socialist, but it's like, I don't, it's okay. You know, some people are going to cheat the system and get food stamps when they don't need it. And it's okay because, you know, the majority of people probably do. And if you can help someone and if they raise my taxes, I'm okay with that, you know, because, you know, life's been good to me. And so mm-hmm. sharing it a little bit is, is okay with me. So I'm probably not the typical capitalist, but uh, but I'm not a socialist either. So yeah. Yeah. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears. I think this is actually a perfect place to segue into the whole idea of marketing flexology. But I think, you know, what actually struck me most is, you know, book is sitting here on my desk is the subtitle of, you know, how to outsmart change and future proof your career. <laughs> now, yeah. the whole idea of future proofing really struck me because uh, I you know, I went to Berkeley as an undergrad at a time when we were pretty much inventing the internet, you know, like the early mid nineties to early 2000, when we were building the infrastructure for everything we have today. Um, eBay went public at the time. Yahoo went public at the time. But one thing I, I remember that I never forgot is somebody said that, you know, the average computer scientist by the, you know, graduate, by the time they finish a four-year degree, everything they've learned is already outdated. And that seems to be more and more true today. So Absolutely. what prompted your uh, desire to, to do, frame a book about marketing in this context? Yeah, no, that's a very good. Because I, I do think that, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of sub-themes here, but, um, but I like your point because about the skills you're learning today um, and that's why I get away from the art and science of marketing into this thing I call insight and agility, because I think agility, which is going to help you outsmart change and future proof your career. You know, they say that um, ability can take you so far, only so far, but then agility is going to take you further. But to your point, you know, experts have said that, you know, by like 2034, 47% of today's jobs will be automated, 65% of today's students are applying for jobs that don't yet exist, you know, so that's mm-hmm. really, so the, you know, the prowess or the education, the expertise that landed you your current role is going to be outdated by the time you're looking for your next role. So that's why I am very much into lifelong learning and to be a lifelong learner, which is different than education. And you talk about this a lot. So I'm on, you know, the same wavelength as you are, Serenia, as, as far as, you know, education does not equal learning. Um, lifelong learning uh, and with the internet, it's so easily, readily available now. There's no excuse, you know, is, um, is, is the future, you know, and agility is the future. So it's not only the ability to, um, you know, to be prepared uh, so that when opportunity meets preparedness, some people say that's luck, but opportunity meets preparedness. If you're not able to execute on that, to seize that moment, you know, to implement, to take action, it's not going to go anywhere. So that's where agility, I'm really big on, you know, the agility and honing your skills, your agility skills, or your soft skills. There's more than, and it's not just agility, it's creativity falls in there. Um, mm-hmm. But that's where, uh, that's, so in the book, I really talk about 
uh, half of its mindset and half of its tool set. So I give them the tool set, the compass, or the I give them the, the, the mindset, the compass, and I give them the tool set because I know people want it. So I give them the map, mm-hmm. you know, but the missing link is the action. Will they take the action, you know, to, yeah. to implement it, right? Like anything else. So, so let, let's actually get into this, because like I told you, I mean, there was just so much here that I, I couldn't actually put it into to notes, but instead decided to mind map the book. But I think there were certain things that struck me. You know, in the first chapter, you talk about four or five different shifts. And as I said, I think I want to take a look at this through the lens of sort of, you know, a creative entrepreneur, somebody like me, who's not necessarily building the next Fortune 1000 company, but, you know, building a, a small business or a business that, you know, allows them to make a living. And um, I think there, there was... One thing that struck me in particular was sort of rethinking the sort of traditional model of, of business school of, you know, the four P's of marketing and, you know, instead you have the four C's. Um, but let, let's talk about this whole shift idea in the context of creative work and how it applies. Okay. So there is a lot of um, false narratives in any, uh, everywhere, right? Um, a lot of false narratives, whether you call it fake news or you call it the pablum that we've been given, you know, the whole thing about marketing, art, and science, you key that into Google and you're going to get 600 million searches. Is marketing and art and science, and you'll get people on both sides arguing very aggressively, like, no, marketing is an art, and this is what, no, marketing's a science, and this is what you need to do. And really, it's the wrong question to ask. So I think Mm -hmm. those false narratives are true. You know, the four P's to the four C's. There was a poll that was done by Marketing Week, you know, just a couple of years ago. And it said, is the four P's of marketing. And for those of non-marketers on the call, you know, their product, price, place, and promotion. And those were put in place like 50, 60 years ago. And they asked this Marketing Week poll, are they still relevant today? And 77% of people said yes. And it's like, what are you thinking? You know, it's not about you. It's not inside out. It's about the customer in, you know. And there was a model that was put in place uh, in 1990, but it was from a non-academic. So I think uh, that's why it wasn't readily adopted. The four piece of marketing was through academia. Mm-hmm. And they do hold a lot of, wield a lot of power and uh, authority and um, peer reviews and all that. But there was a gentleman named Robert Lauderburn born he was from GE and International Paper. He was an executive. And he put forth this model of four P's, uh, four C's of marketing. He said, it's not about the product. It's about the customer. It's about th- what the customer needs, wants, and desires. It's not about price. It's, you know, how, what's the cost to satisfy that need, you know, uh, of want, desires, and needs, you know, and, and what are those value judgments and trade-offs? It's not just about money, monetary. Mm-hmm. It's about prestige. And it's about you know, convenience and comfort, all those uh, environmental contribution purpose, you know. And he said, it's not about place where you sell your product. It's about the convenience to buy. And if you want to buy it, you know, online, you're seeing it now, bricks and mortar online, Amazon's taking advantage of that and doing very well. And he said, it's not about promotion. It's about communication. You know, so he turned the whole, you know, paradigm upside down. He came out with that model in 1990. Uh, you have to search to find it. Uh, but I've always in my marketing career and with the teams I've led, I've always espoused that because it's about the customer. It's the customer in. It's not about product and co- it's not about the company out. And so if people uh-huh. haven't made that paradigm shift. So that's just one of the major shifts that, you know, and branding is another one. You know, people think they own their brand and they can, you know, you don't own the brand. Your consumer owns the brand. They'll tell you what it means to them. You're not going to tell them what it means. You can help 
you know, manage and guide it, but you don't own your brand. Yeah. Does that make sense? So these are some of the big shifts. So I like to just kind of, I'm not contrarian, but I like to say, why are we, you know, there's the relook. I think we need a relook instead of being fed the same Pablo. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have no problem with contrarians. I like contrarian yeah. <laughs> viewpoints. Most of mine, mine are, and most of the people I interview tend to bring those. Um, I, I do think that the idea of brand is really interesting because I remember uh, Tom Brady was on Oprah's podcast and she was referencing some little kid who was like, oh, I'm building my brand. And she's like, honey, you don't have a brand. You, your brand comes from the work that you do. Mm, interesting. And that I feel is so yeah. misunderstood by, by so many young people who are like trying to basically get attention. Exactly, exactly. Or they think that, you know, it, you know, it's, you know, brand is, you know, what you say is what you do, you, you know, say equals do. That's the main thing of branding, you know, mm-hmm. it's what you do. And that's where you say the work or how you, uh, it's got to be culture, it's got to be all tenants of the organization, all the way, all the decisions you make from, uh, you know, how you go to market. It's not just marketing. It's not just the mm-hmm. communications. It's everything. It's the decisions you make, the strategies, the markets you pursue, the customers you go after. That's, yeah. you know, that really determines say equals do. So as a, as a branding person, I do rebrand a lot of companies and have in my career, you know, that's the big thing I say, is this true? Can you really, do you really, is there obstacles in the company that would not allow you to do this because otherwise it's fluff and people are going to see right through it, especially in today's yeah. day and age. If it's not authentic, it's not real. They'll see right through it and they'll call you out. So it's got to mm. be true to who you are. So a lot of it's, you know, changing the traits and the culture of the company yeah. uh, and the processes. You know, if you say you're customer centric, but you can't, you know, answer a question on the front front line without going up to management or headquarters, well, then you're not customer centric, you know, so that's a process. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com wow nice yeah what you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on bomba socks underwear and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds Yeah, 
at Plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. So. Well, let's do this. I, w- I want to go through one more idea around uh, some of the earlier stuff and then get into the, the frameworks of uh, mindset and foundation and dials. But um, let's talk about this call to action idea because I think that that's very relevant uh, even for creative people. Like you go to somebody's website so often nowadays you like read their about page or you read something. I'm like, I have no idea what you do. These are the people that I often turn down as guests so for the podcast. I'm like, I'm not really clear on what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as marketing professionals, we're big on the call to action. And one of the things, you know, call to action CTA, you know, is they should be simple. They should be action oriented, time bound. There's certain words that trigger a call to action. You know, a lot of that's why a lot of people do sales, because that's like a trigger. So you need a trigger for a call to action. And some of the rules for call to actions are also um, um I lost my train of thought there, but, you know, call to action has to be immediate and it has to be single. Oh, that's what I was going to say. You can't have multiple. That's probably what you see, Serenity, when you go on others' websites. They have multiple calls to action. Download this and do this and sign up for this and do that. And it's supposed to be singular in purpose. So focus is a very big thing. You know, mm. uh, positioning is the art of sacrifice. I think Al Reese said that you know, a marketing pioneer, you know, positioning is the art of sacrifice. And that's the hardest thing for companies to do is leave things on the table. So they want to be all things to all people. And as a result, they're nothing to anyone, you know, so you have to really focus. So, and what I say in the book is I, I talk about, you, we need to have our, develop our own call to action. We're so good at it. And again, I'm doing it from a marketing lens because I want to stay in my lane, you know, rather than talk more broadly. And, um, we're so good at developing call to actions for our marketing material, but we're very bad at developing call to actions for our own personal life. So what is it that you need to do to get off the dime, you know, to, to, you know, to take that next step, to take that plunge, you know? So I, I kind of playfully say, you know, if you need a call to action, here's some of my favorite ones, you know, transform or be transformed, flex or die. You know, I mean, um, it's a little tongue in cheek, but it's like, mm-hmm. uh, if you need a sense of urgency to take that next leap. And, you know, as I said earlier, if the pain of where you are is greater than the opportunity ahead of you, a lot of people won't change unless they're forced to. And it's yeah. too bad. You know, it's too bad because, uh, well, it's, it's human nature, I guess. Yeah, it, it was funny you say that because, um, you know, we we did a survey of our audience, our readers recently, and, and the number one thing that came up over and over again was a lack of focus. So I actually sent an email uh, 
about the opportunity cost of distraction. I said, you know, reply to this and tell me what this is costing you in your life. And I was amazed. But I started the email by saying you shouldn't have opened this email. That was the first <laughs> sentence. So a lot of people didn't reply. And in one way, I was kind of like, okay, I'm torn that they didn't reply. And at the same time, I wonder if they immediately got the lesson because they didn't reply. Mm, mm, that's good. I like that. I like that a lot. And so what did the, the survey, what did your findings find? Uh, well, you find? I, I think really focus, lack of focus was a big one, right? The inability yeah. to, to pay attention, like, I mean, all the standard digital distraction stuff that that seems to be a big obstacle for most people. And, you know, it's funny because it, it's, there's almost a, a, a sort of, conflict because they say they want to do things like write books, build companies, all this stuff. And it's like, but you can't focus enough to get something done. There's no way you're going to get those things done because those things require an immense amount of focus. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's true. You know, positioning is the art of sacrifice. So focus, focus, focus. I mean, that's, that's the number one. Yeah. Uh, and then once you get knock that one out, go to the next, uh, go to the next. It's hard. It's hard. You yeah. want to, um, focus is a hard thing. Yeah. Well, let's get into what you call the marketing flexology mindset. Um, you kind of break this down into three key areas. You know, one is business first. The second is mindset that spans generations and characteristics of a business leader. I want to start with mindset that spans generations because I think this is very uncommon today. Like people often want something, you know, to basically be this massive success within a short amount of time of starting it. And I, I never forget this, this one thing. Sam Altman, who was the president of Y Combinator, when he coaches founders, he always says, he's like, you know, your, your biggest the greatest competitive advantage is a long-term view, which he defines as 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think that that's so uncommon nowadays for people. So tell me, you know, when you see that, what do you like, when you think about this idea of mindset that spans generations, what does it mean to you? Yeah. So I, I did that because I wanted the book to span mindsets because, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been in marketing for, you know, three, four decades. So it's easy for millennials, my own children, probably to say, oops, my, Sorry about that. I got to turn my volume off on this, my notifications. Um, it's easy for them to say, oh, that might have worked in your, but marketing is different today or the world has changed today or it's irrelevant. So how do you stay relevant? And I do think some of this mindset about business first or customer first mindset in particular um, it is an important one that does span generations. Uh, so that's why I mentioned it because you know, the, the characters might change, but I think the basics like focus, positioning, you know, some of the things we talked about, a call to action, the examples mm -hmm. will change, but the, and the people saying it will change. And that's why it's so good to hear the same story out of different people's mouth. You hear, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, you hear um, uh, some speakers and uh, you'll say, you know, because Tony Robbins, for instance, you know, you'll say, wait a second, Sig Ziglar used to say that, but now he's saying that. And I say, you know, it sounds a little bit like he's just repeating things that have been out there, but it's okay because people don't know who Zig Ziglar is and <laughs> Tony Robbins, you know what I'm saying? And then even from Tony Robbins, now it's Simon Simic because even Tony's getting up there in age, right? And so you need the new generation of people to be articulating some of these stories and these lessons and these tried and true, but add new relevance to it, add new meaning mm -hmm. to it and put it in a different context. But the story and the foundation stays the same, you know? Um, so that's what I mean, that some of this spans uh, generations. And I do like your, your quote about um, uh, the, the 50 or the, the four year, what'd you say? 50 years? 10, to, ten, years. ten years. 10 years. Oh, sorry. 10 year. years. Yeah. And someone else said, I don't know if it was Bill Gates, but they said it, it only took me seven years to be an overnight success or something of that nature. Yeah, uh, I know Bill Gates likes to think of things and he said, don't 
people overestimate what they can do in one year and they underestimate what they can do in five years. And I think that's very, mm-hmm. very true. You look at one year views and that's just a calendar, right? The next page of the calendar. And you under uh, you overestimate. You say, oh, I thought I'd get that book written. I thought I'd do 20 blog posts. I thought I'd do, you know, this many, this, that, the next, I th- think, you know, all this. And then you're disappointed because you didn't do it. But they underestimate what that five-year view is. So having a longer strategic view, definitely uh, with milestones along the way. But that requires some discipline, you know. <sighs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so I think the other thing I really appreciated was the way you you described the business first mindset is, you know, typically people are like career team, then company, but you kind of reversed it and said you put the company first, the team second and your career last. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you got to wonder, you know, like, why is it more leaders aren't that selfless about the way they build their businesses? You know, I think it's self-preservation. I think um and, and, you know, I did a lot of, to your point, uh, I did a lot of uh, transformations over my career and I call them career winners and career losers, which gets to the subtitle of the book, I'll smarting change, future proof your career. And I did find, um, and I, you know, there were hundreds of marketing leaders at companies I worked with and I saw how they managed their teams, their budgets, their programs, their agencies, and how they mismanaged, I should say. So a lot of the chaos and anguish really, uh, a lot of it's self-inflicted. And um, and so what I found the biggest difference was the ones that came out of these transformations, these upheavals uh, as winners, so to speak, shared this business first mindset. So I did find that they those who placed their companies or their customers first before their teams and before themselves emerged from these transformations relatively unscathed. And sometimes they were promoted. But the ones that were me first, I think um, Corn Ferry calls it meadership, meadership. I like that. Instead of leadership, mm-hmm. it's meadership. And me first leaders who put their own career and team ahead of their companies, you know, they suffered the biggest upsets. You know, they lost their jobs. They lost their standing. They lost their teams. I think it maybe it's um, um, ego, self-preservation. You know, we're seeing some of that now play out in the on the global political stage, you know, self-preservation versus doing what's right for people you're serving. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's funny because I think about the that in the context of how we even select podcast guests. And I'm like, I will always prioritize the interest of my listeners over publicity for a podcast guest. Like that Beautiful. is, you know, without a doubt, the one thing. And we've turned down many famous and well-known people because of that. You know, we're like, our show is not to give you publicity. It's to provide value to our listeners. Totally agree. 100% agree. And if you do that, the rest will take care of itself. And that's what I found. Whenever I, you know, as leaders in business, you know, you're always faced with decisions. And it's very easy to say, oh, my God, you know, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my team? Are they going to take half my budget away? Oh, my gosh. You know, I better vote against this or do something. But if you say, you know, what's the right thing for this? You know, I like to say, you know, you can't have a solvent career without a solvent company or solvent business, yeah. you know? And if your company isn't succeeding, how do you think you're going to succeed if the company's not succeeding, you know? Um, so to me, and when I say business first, it is business first. And if you put it in that order, what what's the impact on the business? The right decision for the business, which is really the customer, right? Is mm-hmm. it the right decision for my team? You know, is it uh, going to help them, enable them, move them in the right direction? And is it the right thing for me? You put yourself last, you can never go wrong. And maybe that's so, some of the humility part too. I don't know. Yeah. So well, let's talk about the the foundation. You know, you talk about three core areas, which are purpose, people, strategies, and core processes. 
let's talk briefly about purpose because I think that you know this search sort of search for you know what's my why can also become an act of mental masturbation for a lot of people who just end up doing nothing and search for their why. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm always wary of that because I feel like whatever that purpose is is something you discover. Uh, I was really fortunate that I got to literally have Simon Sinek dissect it for me when he was a guest on the podcast. And I remember when he told me he said your why is that you're obsessed with people who are good at unusual things. And my immediate response was that's fucking useless, Simon. What do you want me to do with that? Mm-hmm. And now you know, 10 years later, I'm like, wow, that was spot on. Every single thing I've done is a reflection of that exact statement. Wow. I'd love to talk to him. I'd like him to tell me what my why is. (laughs) That's good. So now it's, uh, now it's night and weekend reflection on myself. Right. So that's awesome. Well, let's talk about that. Like, you know, it's, you know, the the thing is that that reflection itself can be almost counterproductive if you're not careful. Um, So like, how do you, you find, help people find this, you know, within organizations and then how do you take that and, you know, extrapolate it to individuals? Yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's easier when you do it with companies or brands yeah. than it is with individuals because it gets personal, right? And so when I talk about purpose, you know, uh, of a company, it's a lot less um, um, questionable or, or confrontational. And that's really having a well-defined charter and agreed to support model. So what's the purpose? And again, I set that up in, in, the, um, in the context of marketing because that's kind of my bailiwick where I feel like I have some right to talk about, you know, or some credibility to talk in that field, because that's what my experience has been, and not in the more broad field. So when I say, what's the purpose of your marketing organization? I talk about having a charter agreed to support model, because just because you were named the CMO, which is chief marketing officer, or doesn't mean that's, you know, that gives you permission to start. It doesn't give you an automatic pass. And so many people say, think CMOs say, well, I'm the CMO. I've been appointed the CMO. No, that's just a starting block. You know, that is just saying, let's see what you can do. And mm-hmm. so the first thing in, in living up to that or owning that or being given credibility in that role, and that's why so many CMOs fail, you know, their tenures are, are incredibly short, half of what CFOs and CEOs are, but, you know, and there's a reason for that. But, you know, having a well-defined charter and agreed to support model, not just what you think your model is, but have others agree that, yeah, I'm a service bureau, a marketing service bureau. I'm an in-house agency that can deliver this stuff to you, uh, to this company at lower cost. Or I'm an advisor to the C-suite or, you know, making sure that it's very clear and that everybody signs off and that's what your charter is or that's what your purpose is. So how does that translate to individuals? I think the individuals, the marketing professionals, you know, benefit from that because you've cleared one hurdle for them. You've been very clear and consistent about what they are and what they aren't and what they do and what they don't do. So when people mm-hmm. throw things over the fence and say, I need three images and two brochures and a blog post, you know, that's an ask. And that's not strategic. And if you've laid out your charter and support model, say, no, you know, we really need to, you know, why? I start with why, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? Why do you need these things? And is there a better way of accomplishing that? So I think yeah. having that purpose, you're enabling your team to operate and to succeed. 
Uh, well, speaking of team, let, let's talk briefly about team. I, I want to, we're probably gonna have to skip some of what I want to get to in the interest of time, but oh, um, you talk about people strategies. And uh, I think the, the thing that struck me here was that you said design first, staff second. And I, I think that that was one of those things. Victor Chang uh, has this book called Extreme Revenue Growth, which I refer back to constantly. And one of the things he always says, he says, don't write a job description, write a results description, um, which that mm. stayed with me. But um, when you think about sort of that and also, you know, bringing the right people on, because I've worked with a lot of the wrong people and, and early on in a small business, the wrong people are serious dead weight and they don't just slow you down. They can be detrimental to the entire success of the business. I a hundred percent agree with you. Uh, I don't know what percent actually follow that, but you should always design the organization for what you're trying to accomplish, what are the metrics, yeah. and then staff it with the best and brightest people. So many people mm-hmm. go the other way around. They get all their, you've seen it, you know, a new organization, a new leader comes in, all the old ones are out and all the new cronies from his old company, her old company, you know, come in and you say, hmm, that's, that's interesting. They bring the posse in so to speak. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that's particularly helpful. And it's, again, it's discipline, right? It's being very business first, you know, um, doing what's right for the company. So I'm very big on, you know, um, you know, uh, well-defined um, people strategy, you know, designing first, staff second. And my second strategy is staff for the valley, not for the peaks. You know, uh, those are my people strategies that I like to do because so many times, you know, marketers and business people and all of us, you know, are an optimistic lot and we think we need more resources and more people than we probably do. And so we say, oh, I need 10 people to, you know, and then when bad times come rolling or a recession or um, economic downturn, you know, you're faced with layoffs. So you should staff for the valleys and not for the peaks and then supplement it with outside uh, people. So lean is, you know, lean and nimble is the name of the game. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I don't want to go into the six core processes only because I think it might not be completely relevant to our listeners, but I do want to talk about process because this is something I hammer creative people with over and over again. I'm like, trust me, I am like systems and process. I'm like, you want to know what makes the most prolific artist prolific? Systems and process. So, you know, when you look at it, like, and I, I think that you know, and I remember I'm writing this blog post about the things I would have done differently if I started my business today. And I, I explained it. I said, listen, I'm like, there's a reason big companies have all these processes that seem like a bunch of bureaucratic bullshit. I'm like, it's mm-hmm. because you cannot scale anything without those processes. Otherwise, it basically evolves into chaos. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, from your point of view, like, you know, based on what I've said to you about sort of the creative work, like, how would you explain this to people who need to understand this from a creative work perspective? No, that's an excellent point. And a lot of people hate process. They think process is slow, limiting, and bureaucratic, and it's going to slow down their creative. But I found time and time again. Now, I believe in lightweight processes, you know, and not yeah. too many. Start with a handful. I'm not saying, you know, processes that overlap each other and they, you know, red tape and gridlock. But I'm talking about systems and processes that enable you to do your best work. So a good example, I mean, you know, even in the home life, you know, I have, and maybe I'm rigid on this, but I never have to look for my scissors, for my roll of tape, for the masking tape. I never have to look for my toolbox. It is always in the same place. And I like that. And that's not rigid. That's I don't like chaos. You know, I don't want to be searching the house for where my car keys are. Can you imagine? 
Where are my car keys? Where did I leave them? Where were you last? There Are they in your pocket? No. As soon as I come home, I put them in the exact same spot. And as soon as I leave, I take them out. To me, that's yeah. a system and a process. I don't think that's bad. I think it's liberating, quite frankly. <laughs> and it saves me so much time, you know. But some people love the chaos. You know, where did I put that? You know, it's yeah. like, Make a system for it, a process. It doesn't have to be perfect. You can evolve that process, but have a little bit of a procedure around, you know, uh, where this stuff is and how to how to go about it. And in the business world, it's very important. I've been asked to do things yeah. and I'll say, oh, good. We'll call our events agency. Oh, we don't have one. It's like, mm-hmm. how am I going to pull this off in two weeks if we don't have, did nobody think of doing, you know, it's like you've been around yeah. 40 years and you never came up with you know, it's like, come on, where's where's it's, the data management system? Where's your, you know, it's just bizarre. It is shocking. I, I have a friend who um, has a consultancy called Gap Consulting, where he uses Airtable to build these very complex automations for, you know, huge businesses. And the first thing he has them do is go through their process. And he finally realized, he said, half of them don't know it. And he finally said, look, if we're going to help you figure this out, we're going to charge you for it. And so he's like, we'll help you figure mm-hmm. out the process. But now we're going to add on a, you know, massive consulting fee. It's, but he said, it's amazing. As big as some of these places get, they don't actually have process. It is amazing. I am shocked. And you can't do your best work. And that's what the stability, agility, the roots, you know, and wings, right? If you don't have the foundation, how can you really, you know, soar with the eagles, right? (laughs) If you're you're saying, oh, where's that nest? You know, where, where, where did I leave that egg? You know, oh my gosh. So... So I think I want to wrap uh, by going into two of the tools, the ones that I think are the most relevant for people listening, and that is the messaging framework and the marketing playbook. Let's get into the messaging framework. Like, you know, I mean, I think a lot about this as somebody who tells stories for a living. You know, like, Mm -hmm. what is the message that we're trying to get across here? What is the message we send every time we choose a guest, you know, with every email we send, with every blog post we publish? Like, it's something I spend a lot of time on. So um, I'm curious, like, what does this framework look like? Yeah, so it's one page. Um, you could have multiple, but the, the simpler, the better. And it takes a lot of hard, hard work. That's the focus and the positioning to get to one page. It's easy to do yeah. a 12, a 20 page messaging map. And I do a lot of messaging. <laughs> I do a lot of messaging for companies and it's basically taking all their disparate things and organizing it. It's an organization process, right? It's organized. It's where are your keys. It's organizing it in blocks so that you can double click on those blocks at the appropriate time, but telling the bigger story. So everyone loves a great story. And all great stories start with a messaging map or some framework. So I like a very simple one, one page at a glance. It could be an 11 by, you know, 11 by 17 page. You know, some of them have quite a bit of stuff on it. But if you can get, and that's all executives in a company will pay attention to anyway is one page. They're not going to wade through, suffer through 20 page of a messaging. And so if you can get it very concise on one page and say, these are our differentiators, these are a value proposition, this is what makes us unique, these are the key products we're going to highlight, and do you agree with this or modify? And I don't really care how they modify. I'm just more excited, elated, you know, when they agree on the priorities. And so once you have that message map, then you can build beautiful stories. They say messaging is an orphan and... um what do they say? Messaging is an orphan and stories have many fathers. Mm. It's just, it's, yeah. And so that's good. You know, you want uh, one person to own the pen, one person to write this messaging framework or map, whatever you want to call it, with the blocks and then do the double click of the content behind it. So if you say behind door number one, if you're 
big message map is diversity and inclusion. Double click behind door number one. There are your 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 hashtags. There is your blog post. These are some titles. These and then marketing people or other business leaders can develop rich content. Here are your spokespeople can develop rich content behind those. But it's fewer uh, fewer messages, more stories, is the goal. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I well, <laughs> you're speaking my language. Uh, that's that's literally the way I think about everything. Is that like I told? I think right before we hit record, I told you no sound bites, more stories. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But they should all go back to what your core things are that you're focused on. You yeah. know, and so you know, uh, speakers do that, or interviews do that. There's a simple one page message map for speakers, and it's kind of like a cheat sheet. And they say, if asked any question, go back to these four. You know, try to weave the message back to these four um, topics that you want to talk about and avoid these others and going down rat holes. So yeah. I don't I don't do that because I'm not an interviewer, so to speak. But um, right. it's a very good discipline to follow when you do messaging. Yeah. Wow. So the the final piece of this I wanted to ask you about was um, the uh, marketing playbook. Like, I mean, I feel like, you know, when I look at marketing, there's a thousand things that anybody could be doing at any given time. I feel like and every day there's like some new hottest app that somebody needs to be on. And I like I, you know, I think what I've found over the course of, of building Unmistakable Creative is how often so many trends are just giant distractions. You know, like I, yeah. I still remember this period of, of time when Google Plus was this thing that everybody needed to be on and like every mo- social media marketing blog was talking about it. And, you know, six months later, you know, I mean, here we are. I don't think anybody even remembers Google Plus now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so how do you figure that out? Like, I mean, because I feel like going far and wide it just feels like such a um, scattershot approach as to going deep into one area. Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. So the marketing world in particular is very uh, inundated with, I've got a great idea. Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And so the playbook really helps set up a a system. um, It it identifies where you're going. It's a living document. It's not static. So, you know, obviously with, you know, pandemics and downturns, you know, you have to modify on the run and adjust it as needed. But it really gives your team and your clients, your business clients within your company, a clear direction of where marketing is going, where the the, the key priorities are, what the key audiences are. And, you know, the message map is in there, the messaging framework is in there, what the key messages are, you're going to articulate it. And it always maps back to business goals and business strategies and how you're going to measure it. So if you say these are the marketing strategies, they shouldn't be, if someone says we're going to do, um, you know, um, image campaign, you know, or, or take over walls, uh, take over times, uh, uh, times square, you'll say, okay, now, starting with why, you know, how does this relate back to some of our strategies? And then is this going to help the business move the needle? Or is this Mm -hmm. just some clever idea? So it's kind of keeping creativity or cleverness in check, the ad hoc request in check, because everybody's got a great idea. And marketing, you know, there's a big M marketing and a little M marketing. Everybody's a marketer and they should be, you know, you want people to market for the company, but the role of the central department is, you know, the big M marketing is to put the systems and processes and the playbooks in place and the frameworks to enable and unleash. I'm not about corralling and controlling. I'm about enabling and unleashing 
you know, you can't control these messages or these brands, you know, and you want your employees talking about on social media and with their friends and neighbors, you want them articulating, but that requires, you know, some kind of organized process and framework that the marketing department or leader puts in place that says, here's the boundaries and the framework and go out and articulate. And that's mm-hmm. where I think you can get movement, you know, and you can get um, you can get um, everyone marching in the same direction on the same page. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. This has been really, really uh, thought provoking and, and eye opening. I, I think I, I love, you know, the fact that this is a very practical approach, because even when you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, about something, you know, I did a, a two week think week where I just took time off to read and write and kind of reflect on the last year. And when I went back and looked, I said, you know, there's only one metric that actually moves the needle in our entire business. And instead of optimizing for a dozen, maybe we should just optimize for this one, which is conversion from website to email subscribers, because we can influence everything else with that one metric, as opposed to all these other sort of random distractions of, oh, let's get more Facebook fans. It's like, well, will that really do anything for us? Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you 100%. Focus is great. If you have one metric or a handful, three metrics, maybe the rest are, um, you know, there's a difference between a dashboard and a scoreboard, right? So sure, you need to know if you're, you know, if you're, uh, you know, if your views on the website are going up, but that's not your metric, you know, so mm-hmm. picking that one metric. And so for marketing, I always say there's three, you know, you want to influence stock price because that's through reputation and belief in the company. You want to impact the top line and you want to minimize the bottom line. And if you just look at those, the rest are, that's all management cares about. They, they don't want to wade yeah. through, you know, your dashboard, you know, uh, they want to know, you know, the scoreboard, you know, are you, uh, you know, are you making progress on the things that matter to them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so absolutely. fewer is better. Focus is good. Fewer is better. Awesome. Wow. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your insights and stories with listeners. So I have one final question for you, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Yeah, I was waiting for that question because, and I I thought about it a lot, actually, uh, because when I think of unmistakable, I think of distinctive, unique, ownable. um, And I really related it back to branding. You know, there's a branding exercise that we do. and we say, you know, in the, in the marketing circles, it's, it's, uh, if you did this brand or this ad, let's say you created an ad and if you covered the logo, would you know it was that company? So if it was an ad for Disney, you know, without knowing it was Disney putting forth this ad, it should talk about happiness and magical. And then yes, true to the band brand or unmistakable or unique would be Disney. You know, if it was Volvo, you know, uh, it would be an ad all about safety, let's say, and they do a hundred things besides, you know, safety, but their key takeaway that sticks in people's mind or is that unmistakable is Volvo. Apple is innovation. You know, Google is search. Uh, even people, you know, if you did something for Warren Buffett, you know, it, he's the frugal billionaire, you know, so to speak, right? And uh, is it true? Are the messages that you're sending true to who that person is? So it's really a brand. Oprah would be mm-hmm. empathy, you know, and so, uh, like I said, in branding, you know, we cover up the logo and say, who would this company be? And if people say, well, that's not our company, well, then you're going down the rant, wrong path of your company, but you can do it for people too. Uh, so if you say that's not, you know, true to who I am, you know, and then it gets back to the say equals do. So mm-hmm. that's how I would, you know, being distinctive, unique, ownable, um, you know, those are wonderful, wonderful traits and behaviors. 
Awesome. Well, uh, like I said, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your uh, story and wisdom and insights with listeners. Where can people find out more about you, um, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to? Well, thank you. So I have a website, as everyone does these days, www.marketingflexology.com. Flexology is F-L-E-X-O-L-O-G-Y. It's kind of a play on words of mixology, you know, because it's kind of, I have a little jingle in there about marketing flexology. So anyway, www.marketingflexology.com. And then you can find everything you need on that website. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.